0: Welcome to the DEVCOM Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Jansen. Welcome to a special episode of our DEVCOM Podcast. Next week, starting Monday, August 23rd, our DEVCOM Developer Conference 2021 will take place. And we have a great lineup of speakers as well as many events and sessions for you. The conference will be 100% digital this year, and we still have tickets available. Go to devcom.global for more details. We're looking forward to connecting with you during the conference next week. And what better way to get excited about the upcoming conference than listening to this episode of our podcast, where I have the honor to welcome two guests with a combined total experience of over 80 years in making games. I'm very excited to speak with Jess Mulligan and Don Daglow, both pioneers and what they like to call themselves true citizens of online gaming, who both helped shape the industry as we know it today. Welcome to the two of you. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and thank you so much for being my guests. Yeah, Thank you for having us. Great to be here with you guys. So let's kick this off with a brief overview of your personal journeys as as part of our industries, maybe covering uh, some of the highlights you worked on either alone or together, because I know that you have worked on many projects together. And uh, we'll then take a closer look at, uh, you know, defining moments uh, in your careers together. And I would suggest, Jess, maybe let's begin with you and we'll take it from there.
1: Okay, well, I'm the youngster. I only have 35 years experience in this industry. Uh, I started out as a SysOp on Genie, that system operator. We call them moderators today, running forums, checking files, that kind of thing. But uh, I I basically got into the industry early, so nobody could keep me out. I'm not sure I'd be qualified to enter today. Uh, when I first got into the online side of these things, and I started out in the online side, not on the uh, you know solo game publishing side. There were maybe a hundred people worldwide working on online games, maybe you know and uh, so it was pretty easy to slip in i was uh, america online's first game producer even before they were called america online And you know, back then the company was quantum computer services and they did several online services most famously one for commodore 64 computers where habitat was built in one of the like one of the very earliest online games Uh, From there, I moved over to General Electric Service, uh, Genie. And I was their first game producer for a number of years, working with the ever-great Bill Loudon. This guy just basically gave me carte blanche to bring games online because he loved games, too. He came from CompuServe to actually start Genie for uh, uh, General Electric. And he signed several games there, so we did a number of firsts there, right? Like we did the, uh, the first Mech Warrior game, multiplayer BattleTech, Harpoon, Air Warrior. I mean, games that really broke ground in this industry. We also did the second uh, AD&D game online. We had one of our own. I did the. We did the first one at AOL. That's where. I ended up meeting Don. Don and I met in 1988 when I was still at AOL, and his company was making games for, well, I guess it was, was it Q-Link or PC-Link? I forget. Probably QLink. It,
2: it, we'd started out on Q-Link before PC-Link and uh, Apple-Link had come online.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Been so many years ago, and you know, us old folk, you know, we need to have our memories jogged occasionally. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, yeah, I, I had actually convinced uh, Steve Case and Kathy Anderson at a, at AOL at Quantum that we needed to look at ad and D very seriously. You know, we needed a license, and we need to do a game, and you know, do a client based game. So Steve Case turned around, I guess, and went to uh, went to Don, you know, because Don was already, you know, working under contract for a project or two. But I'll let him tell that story when we get to it. So anyway, Genie takes 1991. I went back to being a sysop on Genie, running the Macintosh forums. For uh, a number of years, then I got into the publisher side, you know, Brian Fargo at Interplay, you know, brought me on board to basically help start up an online division. You know, they had a Star Trek license and I, boy, I really wanted to get my hands on that Star Trek license if we possibly could. They also were negotiating a Star Wars license at the time. So I spent you know, three and a half, four years at Interplay, helping set up the online division, getting it launched. You know, they spun it out into Engage Online. Then I went into consulting for a number of years, like 10 years. Right. So I mean, this was it, the first big explosion. Everybody wanted to get into online games, especially after Ultima Online launched in 97. And then EverQuest and Asheron's Call, Launched in '99, so in that time span, I, I actually did a uh, a slide for one of the presentations I used to give to companies. At one point, there were 167 online games being made just in the U.S. in '97 uh, through '99. That's when you think about how far back that was. That's pretty incredible total. Right. I think a grand total of 12 of those games ever actually launched. Right. So that's how fast it crashed. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I ended up uh, consulting until about 2003. And then Turbine hired me as an executive producer for Asheron's Call 1 and 2. Uh, we bought the those games back from uh, Microsoft. Microsoft was our publisher. The relationship was a bit strained at the time. and we just wanted to control our destiny anyway. So we bought it back. So I had to set up an entire online service in four months, right from scratch, customer service, you know, billing, account management, the whole nine yards. And that was a lot of fun. I I think I probably only lost maybe 10 years of my life (laughs) in in those three years or so. Then I went back to uh, consulting for a while. And then I met Lars uh, when I was doing a a short uh, informal contract. Wasn't paid. I was just helping out a friend. Uh, The company that he owned was doing a game or licensing a game from a company that Lars worked at again the the relationship was strained but i got to know lars as i was trying to help work that one out and it worked out pretty well because later on uh that about four or five years later i saw a, an advertisement on one of the game sites came across looking for producers for this company i had barely heard of called Travian. But then I remembered I'd played Travian back in the early days in 2009, right? So I uh, dropped Lars an email. I knew he was working there. I said, do you think that would be a good position for me? And he was kind of stunned that I would even consider a company like Travian. So I ended up in Munich for six years. Now I'm back in the U.S., back in consulting, and that's basically my career.
0: That is a very brief overview of like a super long career, and I'm excited to, yeah. you know, dive deeper into uh, some of the highlights um, during that career. And, and by the way, I'm I'm really happy that I got to meet you. About uh, I think it's now ten years ago, or closing into to ten years, and uh, we've worked together on a couple different projects. So it was uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, I'm glad yeah. that you made that decision to join a company that was probably not too well known outside the Europe uh, the the European area uh, when you decided to come here and uh, come to Germany. Actually, but uh,
1: it was a it was a pleasure.
0: <laughs> it's it's good to hear. Now let's uh, let's hear Don. You know, uh, I think you have even more years <laughs> of experience than than, than Jess uh, making your first games. Uh, you know, many many years ago. So give us a brief overview of uh, you know what your journey has been looking like.
2: Well, it's it's hard for me to lie about my age because this is the fiftieth anniversary of my first computer game this year. Congratulations, and... by the way. <laughs> I, I tell you, it's. Uh, Never, I had no idea what I was starting because I was a playwriting major at college at a college in Southern California here in the U.S. And literally one day I walked into my dorm, and I heard this clack 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 sound in my dormitory in the front hallway, and that was odd. And I asked the woman at the front desk, you know, what's going on? She said, "Oh, some kind of computer thing." So I go back and where there'd been a little storeroom. A group had set up two computer terminals hooked to a time-sharing machine that was, was on the campus. And it turns out I knew none of this at the moment that I walked in. But back in those days, uh, students did not normally have access to a computer. Computers were uh, typical at universities. They were mostly used by the fa- faculty. They were used by grad students. And some of the advanced upper-class uh, classes would might have access to the computer. For everyone else, they might even not know the university has one except to send you your grades and, ask and, and process a bill. Uh, and it was very much in the math and sciences. If you were a liberal arts student, you know, access to a computer was almost unknown. There were exceptions, but they were very rare. And so... At our college, this is Pomona College, which is part of a group called the Claremont Colleges, which is a cluster of schools that share a lot of resources and classes. And what they had done is one student uh, had gotten together with a member of the faculty, and they had written a grant to submit to foundations saying, let's bring the computer, access to a computer to all students by putting computer terminals in a dormitory and having students there help other people, students who are studying computers, live in the dorm and help the other students with it. And the Sloan Foundation awarded them uh, a grant to set up all this. So I walk in, here's these two terminals. They're both printing on paper. One of them is printing on what we would still think of as computer paper, wide pin feed. The other was printing on newsprint And the quality of our newsprint was somewhere between your normal newspaper and toilet tissue, somewhere in between those two levels of print quality or paper quality. But what happened was I walked in and I didn't care about any of that because they said, oh, hi, this is the new computer center for students. Would you like to learn how to use the computer? And I just stuck my head in it suddenly, would you like to learn how to use the computer? Why, yes, I think I shall so uh the next thing that i uh saw was they started showing me things that would actually print out words on the uh on the system and so uh uh, so i'm looking down there and you know first they're showing me something very practical but then they said well would you like to see a game and i thought well that computers game a game on a computer i'd never heard of such an idea So they show me kind of a simple random horse racing thing that says horse number one is running. Oh, now horse number three is ahead. Did you guess the right one? And that wasn't that exciting, but that was cool. And they said, oh, well, do you like Star Trek? And I thought, okay, that's cool. Actually, Actually, before they asked me that, they said, oh, well, here's something that's fun. And they had a... Uh, uh, a copy of of a program called Eliza and Eliza was a little program that tried to imitate a psychologist talking to you about your problems so if you typed in uh, I'm lonely all my friends are back at home uh, it would go oh when did you first start feeling lonely and you, you know You'd type a couple of things, and then, of course, it would not be able to keep up with you, because it was very simple. And it'd go, tell me more about when you were feeling lonely. Because it would get a few phrases in. But for me, as a playwriting major, if you show me a device that prints text, and of course, no graphics back then, all it could do was text. If you show me a device that can print text, and you can have a conversation with it, for a playwriting major, this is a mind-blowing experience. And I look at that, and it's like my head is exploding. This is experiential theater. And, you know, how do you get that many people into a computer room to watch it? How do they watch You know, but that that was what it was to me. And then they showed me a Star Trek game, a very primitive Star Trek game that printed out a script of of Captain Kirk and Sulu and, and uh, Spock and so on. Uh, doing things, speaking of Star Trek. Uh, and so I was just hooked. At that moment, I was just addicted because here's another, here's a TV script being printed out by the computer and it changes based on your input. So uh, I ended up becoming addicted to the computer. I did a major rewrite of the Star Trek game, which was my first experience. Then I did a major rewrite of the conversational game and made improvements in that. Uh, starting from scratch, and uh, now, by this point, my grades are starting to show the impact of all this. And then, the uh, ultimately, I wrote an, a baseball game, which is more of interest to Americans than anybody else. But I wrote the first interactive baseball game on a uh, on a computer. And after a couple of years of this, I I had a friend kind of kick me in the butt and say, "You're you know you're wasting your time here." And implying I could get kicked out of school if my grades start to drift down. I thought, no, i got to settle down. Second half of my college career, I spent less time, but I still worked on projects. And the fortunate thing was then I went to graduate school in the same complex because I got a, a free ride fellowship. I was mostly a scholarship student. And then I was hired as an adjunct instructor at the graduate school. So, and I did that for four years, so I had nine years where most people, if they're lucky, uh, would get maybe four years of access to the computer. I had nine years of access to write games. So 1980, uh, Mattel decides to create the Intellivision video game console and compete with Atari. Uh, test markets are great. It's, it, it all works great. And so they say, we're going to build an in-house team. And they start advertising for this. And uh, I answered a radio ad. Literally, I'm driving down the freeway in my car, and my current job is very, being very politic when I'm not happy. And a voice, said, a voice says over my radio, would you like to work in the exciting world of video games? And it's kind of like God speaking to you. And so I, you know, I always joke, I didn't know whether to look up at the sky or look down at the radio. And fortunately I kept my eye on the road. But the, uh, uh, then, then he's, they say, oh, would you like to help build the future of this exciting new form of entertainment? Yes, yes, I'm excited, yes. Call 213-978-JOBS. That's 213-978-JOBS. Mattel Electronics wants to talk to you. And I was listening... that really the number? Did you memorize that? When a number changes your life, you remember it. (laughs) And so it was... uh, And so I called him up, and I was actually listening to uh, Jazz, and R&B station. They were advertising for... For minority people for minority applicants and they got me instead um, and so I went in interviewed they were just sitting up the team and so on the first day of Intellivision development in-house at Mattel uh, I was one of the original five programmers and I was just I mean what kind of luck is it I was listening to the radio on the right day when I told them i had been programming for nine years they at first they didn't believe me and then they realized I was actually telling the truth so I got the job even as a guy with a playwriting degree, um, and then so I ended up uh, doing uh, the best-known work I did there on a game was Utopia, which was the the first uh, mainstream sim game and god game. And then I got promoted. I ended up being director of game design for Intellivision. Industry crashes in '83, uh, and I got to go to a little tiny startup called Electronic Arts. And at that time, EA had one manager and three producers, and EA was the first company ever to have a producer in video games. And so uh, we were trained by executives from A&M Records uh, to be, we were learning from record producers initially. That was our first training. So uh, worked there for three and a half years, uh, went to Broderbund, ended up running their entertainment and education division. and uh, so I was in charge of the Carmen San Diego team. Prince of Persia uh, was built uh, much of it during this time, and it was during this time in 1986 I met a guy named Robert Gohorsam, whom I know, Jess, you know as well. And the uh, Robert was uh, uh, working in an early. Uh, online system called Prodigy, which was a joint venture of Sears, IBM and CBS who were odd bedfellows. And Robert was traveling to people around the games industry and proselytizing online is for real. This is going to be a real business. And so I met with Robert and he made that case and his case made sense. It wasn't just a, you know, Oh yeah, this is going to be the future. And and Robert and I are still friends uh all these years later and he uh he still makes sense he's a brilliant guy and so i had that in my head and a few months later steve case did a tour of all the major game publishers and he asked each of them for and jess you could probably talk about what it was like on the AOL side leading to this this would be 87 sometime i think and uh, so he talked to all the publishers, said, we want to try and get game, more games on AOL. And only, the, as I understand it, only two publishers talked to him. One of them, Jess, you mentioned Habitat, uh, a later Club Caribe from uh, uh, LucasArts. And uh, we did, at, at uh, Bruderbun. I signed with him to do two games and said, you know, being used to new platforms, I said, let's do something small and simple. So we just start, we start the learning, ship it and get the learning. So we did the first graphical game, which was a Hangman style game, uh, uh, with a uh, programmer named David Schroeder, who's a uh, veteran, veteran game maker, even at that point in 87. So started to learn that stuff, uh, Then I left, Broderbund founded my own company, Stormfront Studios, which was an independent game developer. And almost immediately, within a couple of days, I got a call uh, from AOL, Kathy McHugh, saying, uh, uh, you know, we hear you're starting a company, Uh, let's do something together. And I've always figured that uh, that was Steve remembering that I was one of two people who had said yes when you did that tour and done product with them because they getting that contract, I got two contracts right at the start of the the company and those two contracts really helped launch us and the company went for 20 years. So uh, so we had that and then uh, did a series of other things. The first thing I did for my own company was just a little text application that was called the uh, the Quantum Link serial, and that was under a pen name of Tracy Reed. But once a week, I would write a new chapter, and then uh, this would show up on a board. This is a point where everything's almost everything's all text, and the uh, and then uh, users would write in and say, "I want to be written into the story next week." No, I want to be written into the story next week. And they would have, you know, sometimes they'd have ideas on how they wanted to be it, written in. And I would pick three users and write them into the story for the next week. And so it's a, I had a small contract for this with AOL, but we, this ran for about a year. And we got to where we had 400 people waiting, it expanded to all three services. And we had about 400 people waiting to get in. And I could get nine a week in, three from each service. but. Uh, but, you know, all the while, we're kind of getting the foundations of how this stuff works. And, in, uh, and then kind of the nexus of uh, Neverwinter Nights, kind of to, to show the other side, uh, was, uh, so we were working on graphical and text games with AOL. And we were also doing Dungeons and Dragons games for SSI. And I literally woke up one morning and went, oh, wait a second. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. I, I know how we could do this. We could take the SSI D&D engine, hook it to the AOL system, which was then still Quantum Computer Services, as Jess said. I think we can do this. So there, there's a lot of stories inside how, how, it, how it went, but I pitched it to SSI, Chuck Krogel, uh, who's now been the president of Petroglyph Games for many years, was the leader of, of SSI's product development. He blessed it. I called up Steve Case and I pitched it to him and he said let's 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 talk about this. We got TSR who controlled, controlled D&D at that time to come in and agreed to do it and so everybody came together and that's where Neverwinter Nights came from and and uh, uh, kind of our big AOL project and Stormfront went on for 20 years. Primarily uh, we did uh, some online things but really Neverwinter Nights was our big thing and uh, that was like
1: the perfect storm right because your phone call came maybe a month after i had submitted a white paper about how we should be doing role-playing games because there was so much money and tsr was the 800 pound gorilla and and they just it just kind of sat on desks until your phone call and then all of a sudden they're coming to me going are these figures right? Is there like 12 million people <laughs> playing this game in the US, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you you like actually made my career at, at quantum mm-hmm. computer services. All of a sudden they started taking me really seriously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I, you and I back in the day talked about this stuff but I didn't realize how much it had, it had grown. So what's funny is Stormfront mostly was a triple A console uh, developer. And today we're best known still for, for things like uh, creating the NASCAR racing franchise for EA Sports, doing the first PC versions of Madden Football, again, very American things, uh, doing a couple of different baseball games, and for Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So very much the AAA console thing, apart from Neverwinter Nights, is what we're best remembered for. But Neverwinter, certainly still, we still have the fans out there, uh, supporting the game. And after two th- since 2008, I've uh, also done some uh, consulting. I've got some clients I've actually worked with for 10 years, 12 years now. And uh, Jess, the funny thing is you were talking about it, I was thinking, yeah, publishers and developers who aren't getting along, and a consultant gets dr- called in to try and help buffer it and see if it can get everybody to the finish line. You and I, it sounds like I've both done that kind of work, uh, which is some of the kind of stuff we do. And uh, so I've been doing that uh, primarily for the last 10 or 12 years. I've got my own project I'm working on now, which if things go on schedule as they currently look like, we may announce uh, early next year. But we'll see.
0: Well, at that point, we probably have to do another episode <laughs> of the That's podcast right. so you can talk about it. I was hoping for an exclusive today, you know, like the big announcement what Don Baglow is doing. But uh, no, I think we can wait until, you know, it's ready. <laughs> so... um I learned one thing already, that there was a major inflection point in your career or in your life, Don, uh, pretty much around the same time that it was in, in my life. You mentioned you had your first games industry job in 1980. I was born in 1980, so I guess, you know, very, very important years for both of us. Uh, so, but that that being said, I mean, you, you both talked about, you know, the beginning of commercial online gaming, and I want to uh, learn a bit more about... You know how this actually uh, happened, like where the money came from. I, I think Don, you you started to talk a bit about this already, like that a couple of the the big you know giants came together and said like, okay, there might be something in that space. But but how did it start? Um, I mean, Jess, I know that you were also part of this like early on. Um, what were the first thing that came together till somebody finally believed there's money in online games and there there there's there's you know there's money to be made, in general. <laughs> Hey,
1: you know, especially early on, so think of like 1986 through 92 or 93. There was almost no money available for online games. The people that were doing them were doing them on spec, right, for a royalty. Remember, access fees at that time were per minute charges, right? that uh, well when i first joined uh AOL and Genie i think it was uh after 7 p.m. in the evening local time it was 6 dollars an hour right and uh, if you wanted to get on before then on genie since genie was excess capacity on general electrics mainframes around the world so if you wanted to get on during the day it was 19 dollars an hour from seven in the morning until seven in the evening right and then it would go down to uh, depending on your bod rate so if you were using 300 bod it was like five dollars an hour if you were using 1200 bod it was six dollars an hour and you could connect all the way up to i think it was twelve thousand five hundred bod in 1986 but that's what cost you 19 dollars an hour during the day and i think you got it for nine dollars an hour at night right? so developers when people would go in to play their games developers would get a cut of the action normally 10 percent sometimes 15. but that could be a lot of money in those days like look at so kes corporation uh, was the 800-pound gorilla at that time? They did uh, Islands of Kesmi on CompuServe. Uh, they did Mega Wars, Space Game, Text Space Game. Imagine a space combat game. Everything is in ASCII text. All right. That game would make would gross a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a month on CompuServe. All right. So for two guys making games, Kezmai was basically two guys at that point. They get ten or twenty thousand dollars a month in 1986. Not bad, right? But they also, when Bill Loudon moved over to Genie, he gave them contracts like, "We'll make a Mega Wars for me, right? Make me a role-playing game." And instead of a role-playing game, they gave him Air Warrior, which was a groundbreaking, graphical World War II combat game online multiplayer you get 200 people in an arena fighting each other with various models of world war ii planes it was really exciting okay in 1986 you go in and play this on the macintosh or the amiga or the atari st ibm pc and it was incredible all of a sudden you know you know Genie was probably the smallest of the three major online services at that point like maybe 50,000 subscribers worldwide in 86 87 but that game was making anywhere from 80 to 120,000 dollars a month people would come on during the day pay 19 dollars an hour to complete bombing missions so they could be at the top of the bombing ladder at the end of the month
2: Right, so I was just like and and what's funny is people now picture a game like that. But if you and I pictured the screen together and I think they actually started out even with biplanes in their first versions, uh, because everything was slow and they they could only handle World War One at first when they because of the speed. And of course, most of the planes were in the distance and they were probably about in the resolution time. This is re- low resolution screens. There might have been ten to eighteen pixels per plane. And that was one of the tricks about how they handled the volume. But I also used Air Warrior when I was trying to convince people to do Neverwinter Nights. Air Warrior is one of the things I pointed to because everybody would say, No, it's too slow, the system can never do it, and I would use Air Warrior as my existence proof that we that it could be done. With that if they hadn't done that game first, I might not have won that argument. Oh. But. <laughs> But I've, it sounds like, from what you're saying, maybe I would have, and I just didn't realize. But
1: Yeah, it, it's, you know, yeah. yeah. I, I think you'd have been able to sell it. Role-playing games were a lot bigger than vehicle simulators at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's just, where was I going with this? Now I've lost my train of thought. Were you talking
2: about where the money was coming from? and Oh, how, the money was coming guys... from.
1: So I brought... I signed 17 contracts in the four years I was at Genie, like 19, early 1989, 92. And the total upfront plus development fees that I paid for all 17 games was $50,000. Right? So I mean, like nothing. There was no money. All right? In fact, I don't believe anybody ever spent a million dollars on an online game until Ultima Online. And then we were all shocked that they'd spent like $8 million. It was like, holy crap, with that kind of budget, I could make the best online game ever. Right? So yeah. So there was no money until the industry proved itself. When the publishers got involved, then the money started flowing because they were used to giving money up front. Sometimes a couple of million dollars, even back in the late 80s, early 90s, right? Or promising at least that much to development. So the publishers had the money, right? Like Interplay, when I told them it was going to take us, I told Brian Fargo, I think it was going to cost us $12, 15000000 million to get everything finally set up and games launched, you know, all nine yards. He didn't even flinch company was making a hundred million dollars a year at that point it was one of the top three publishers and to him that was just the price of business
0: yeah where did developers come from at at that early stage you know i can imagine there were not too many that were familiar with the technology required um for this so uh, was it hard to find the right people that uh, could actually build games for those services
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) well mostly So Kesmai trained a lot of people, but it was mostly people who had taken computer science courses in college, right? So like John Taylor and Kelton Flynn from Kesmai were students together at the University of Virginia and just kind of fell in love with game programming.
2: Those guys have never gotten enough credit. I mean, I just think the world of those guys, I have such respect for those guys. And out in the world, they don't. I, I don't see them getting the credit that you and I know they deserve.
1: Yeah, they really do. You know, they 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 were one of the first early on. Uh, other people came from self-taught computer programmers like uh, John Weaver, who did R.S. card games. His company name was R.S. and so he called, like R.S. Poker and RS, uh, P-Knuckle, and everything on Genie. Uh, pretty much everybody I can think of that, that got a, uh, a contract from us at Genie was either a computer major or really interested in computer programming. Well, look at Mark Jacobs, you know, now of City State, but from Mythic, you know, of Dark Age of Camelot fame guy was a lawyer okay you know he was a law student you know and graduated with a law degree but loved computer games and computer game programming he was programming in a version of unix you know even back in the early 80s early mid 80s you know i met him first when he pitched a game to uh quantum computer services aol he lived right in the same area that our offices were in, you know, within like a 15, 20 minute drive. And so, you know, he didn't really like being a lawyer. In fact, even today, he refers to himself as a reformed lawyer. (laughs) So, but yeah, he was, you know, this was a guy that went through and I think graduated with honors from law school and went into being a computer game programmer and, You know, doing his own thing from the very same day, so that's where they came from. Somehow they would find us. Okay, it's like Mark found us. He was doing. Mark had, I think, at one point forty modems set up in his dining room, so people could dial in and pay for his game and play for play it. Right, not bad, right? There's an entrepreneur. (laughs) Definitely, right. So. You know, the the people that were very interested would find us. We got some of them from the computer game development uh industry because they loved the fact that our games couldn't be pirated. They you know, we're sometimes working on four years on a game and not making any money because people would just steal it. They you know, they'd buy it, copy it, give it to their friends. They couldn't make any money. But online, sorry buddy, you gotta pay per the minute. And there's no way you can rip it off. So they loved that concept,
0: and that's still like the the core concept of online games to this day. I would say you know one of the the reasons why it's so fun to be in that in that business, since you cannot copy online games, obviously. So I, I'm curious um, when when we talk about developers on the one side that were contributing to the success in, uh, of, of online games or, or making those. Would it be fair to assume that a lot of those developers were their own consumers? Because I can imagine it was a pretty closed ecosystem. Not too many people had access at the time to, you know, to um to those services. You Jesse mentioned like about fifty thousand subscribers to, to CompuServe or, or Genie, I think uh, you said. Um, so where I can imagine there were a lot of people that were kind of building forming their own community. So so w- w- was that the case? That game dev community was at the same time the ones that were playing it.
1: You know, there weren't that many people in game development either at the time. You know, I mean, when when we say Don's a pioneer, we really mean it. You know, he had that lone covered wagon going across the prairie at the time. (laughs) Where we got people was we went to where they logged in at. They had to buy a modem to access our games. So we did pack-ins with modem sellers.
0: So was that usually that, universities, or got you know, can kind of imagine that a lot of people actually were were logging in from from places where they had more access to to modems and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, if if they had their own, remember universities mainly had mainframes and dumb terminals. Mm. So we got most of our people were businessmen mm, okay. that bought modems because they needed them for business, right? Especially lawyers. Yeah, lawyers who needed to communicate and send documents securely back and forth with their clients, they started buying modems and giving one to their clients. Right, I hooked up, showed them how to use it, so they could send documents back and forth. And they ended up like, I I think the guy that spent the most money on Genie per month on games was spending 2500 per month, and he was both a lawyer and a psychiatrist. So that guy was making a crap load of money.
2: Yeah. And we have to give credit because before we got to do games, these, ser- these systems were originally set up to be resources for people with computers. So the original idea of all of these services, and I think one reason AOL succeeded is they were the quantum, was the most imaginative of them. But people could upload uh, documents to the system, and then other people could download it. And so, and this seems like, oh, yeah, that's really valuable. (laughs) Yeah, I'll see you later. But back then, when you don't have any internet, the idea that, oh, you can hook your computer up to something, you can look around, and if there's a document you're interested in, you can download it, and then you can do something with it. There'd be little programs, you could, uh, BASIC was the language that was kind of universal at that point, uh, that people would, could program. It was accessible to everyday folks, not just not just CS majors. And, oh, I could download this BASIC program and I could modify it. Well, that's exactly what we've been doing on the mainframes, uh, either writing the originals or modifying something that was already there. And so, uh, you know, that was a normal use. And so people would download things like, uh, oh, if you put this on your printer, it'll put out a picture of a cartoon character, and it'll print it. And it was printing it in ASCII characters. So letters, numbers, slashes, asterisks, anything, anything that a, a printer could do that was just off your keyboard, you could print. And, you know, you had these artists who were great at making cartoon characters or playboy centerfolds or whatever it was and they would do it all like that and people would download it and then they'd print it on their printer and then they'd put it up on their wall because it was so cool and so you were basically the idea originally was you were paying your six dollars an hour after 7 p.m you'd go up look around find things you were interested in download them and then you would log off so you could fool around with what you downloaded But the idea was you weren't there that long because you were there to find something, download it, and get off. Well, Quantum pioneered chat, where you could talk to other people, and they had chat rooms. And this was a new thing um, at that point. And, of course, now you're staying on because you're having a conversation. If you're having fun with people, and there's a few other interesting people in the room, and they're scattered around different interesting places, um, now you'd want to stay on. And so suddenly that made things jump. With games, you want to stay on the system and play. You're not just downloading it. You're you're interacting with the system, not downloading it and going away to play. You're playing on the system, which is part of the pitch I made, you know, when we did our first games. And I think Steve, you know, got it. Obviously, you guys internally had been discussing it. The team got it. And so, uh, but we have to understand, we wouldn't have had a chance to do this if it wasn't for the... have a storage of valuable stuff and then download it. That's where the original money came from.
0: So when we talk about uh, how people were using the service uh, early on, uh, you know, if we now look at how people are playing online games today and how important social play is and how important community is and, and managing those communities and providing an outstanding service to the players, how did that look like in the early days? I can imagine. You know, you mentioned Mark, who had like forty modems uh, in his in his dining room at some point. People dialing in. How much did you know about the people that were actually playing those games? And was there any kind of interaction with the people that that paid for that? I can imagine. Imagine if they pay like during the day $19 an hour or in the evening $6 an hour, that uh, it was a pretty exclusive circle and they might have had some expectations uh, towards, you know, being served as as a customer in the best possible way. So I was wondering, you know, how that worked.
1: Well, yeah. So yes and no. These guys were not your average user. They were, you know, lots of discretionary income highly educated so we still had our amount of drama but for the most part these people didn't complain unless there was an actual problem right an actual like hey I can't log on hey the game's not working right the game's down or whatever you don't get like you know they weren't gonna waste like $5 $6 an hour Complaining about bullshit, right? Or you know, taking right. part in in you know high school drama. You know, they they wanted to play because they were paying pretty darn good money to have to play. So early on that way, nah. You know, we we didn't start to see customer service issues really until AOL hooked up uh, their message boards to the internet and chat to the internet. And then all of a sudden, we started getting a lot of people. This is like, what, 97, 98, I think, that they did that, somewhere in there. And and then we just started getting people who, you know, the cost by that point had gone down to either flat rate or $3 an hour, right? Lots of people could afford that.
2: Yeah, I think that was around 94 that that price drop happened, if I remember
0: yeah, I th-
1: I think so. The first one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So at least in the U.S. and in Europe, it was a little different at that point. Oh you know, yeah, in it, Europe, I know it was very different. Yeah, it so. was around the time where I had my first uh, internet access. Uh, you know, it sounds ridiculous compared to you know what you guys did to many years before that. But you know, I can still imagine how expensive it was to to have access. And you know, the first things I downloaded uh, cost me quite a bit at that point. So the United States were a little bit ahead in terms of uh, you know pricing models for uh, online access.
2: And part, I think, part of what we did too is. And we start, I started this early on with with the hangman game, and with uh, even with even with the Quantum Link serial, just with the thing that wasn't a game. It was just the the text that people wanted to get into. But uh, you would hang out on the boards and you'd hang out in the chat rooms. So you'd monitor the boards, hang out in the chat rooms, and so um, when I was writing the the Quantum Link serial. Uh, I would go into chat rooms, sometimes they'd say, okay, there's gonna, you know, people would talk about doing things and maybe we'll get together at this time or whatever. And so I would go into chat rooms as Tracy and I could seed the, see the experience because I was drawing a royalty off the usage of it. I could seed the experience of, of talking about it as Tracy under my pen name. Um, and then you could, I could also go in under my regular account and just talk to people and get a feel for what they were doing and just be a listener, just as, you know, plain old Don. And the relationship between game developer Don and plain old Don wasn't clear. And so you you had a chance to hear people talking just as online game players. And sometimes people who weren't playing games in the system, they were there for the chat and they weren't interested in games. But listen to them and then try and think about, okay, how can we interest them in games if they're only here for chat? Um and then once Neverwinter Night started to grow, then uh we deputized uh people could get free hours on the game if they would serve as guides. And so they would have regular regular shifts where they would come in, they'd have uh, NWN in front of their names that said you were a guide. And so those were folks if you you could encounter Uh, in the game and then they would give you help and they in all the areas around the launch point at Lord Nasher's Palace uh, the the Neverwinter Night guides would be there and AOL didn't have to pay them anything they were doing it in return for free access but there was no cash put out and the guides were immensely immensely helpful in us building the game.
0: I think it's a concept that, that many are still using to this day now probably learning from those early experiences that uh, you know players are willing to go the extra mile and support the developers uh, uh, and, and the community by having you know some kind of special access to in that case really like the, the game or you know special features that only they get to feel appreciated. So I think it's still it's still something that a lot of developers uh, do these days to uh, really in- involve the community in the, in the game making.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, we, we couldn't do without them then. We can't do it without them now. You know, it's just they they know the games after launch. They know the games better than we do. All right. That's, that's true. We don't have enough time to play. We're busy fixing bugs and adding new content. right? So these guys are the ones that are out there playing. They're telling us what the bugs are. They're telling us what content they want. And they're helping other people get involved in the content
0: so if we fast forward 20 30 years from from like the early days to pretty much where we're now what would you say are major inflection points uh in terms of what online gaming has become today so were there defining moments uh in the last decades that changed it so much that that made things possible or not possible before and 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 what were those from your point of view
1: I tell you, from from the live operations side, one thing we discovered was that customer service does not scale very well. All right, so it was pretty easy on in the 80s and 90s, and even the early 2000s, because we didn't have to worry about 10 million subscribers to a game. All right? but boy, once you get over say half a million subscribers. It becomes impossible to have enough human attention in customer service to the game. You can't, you can't, nobody can afford it, not even Blizzard. Okay? And Blizzard has more money than God.
0: Right? They, they, they so, would probably disagree, but, you know, yeah. I think you're right.
1: <clears throat> but this is where the whole fact that, you know, volunteer guides, volunteer moderators, people who understand the game, guild leaders, right? Guilds, community members helping other community members takes a great load off of us, especially in the West, right? My experience has been that when it comes to customer service, you look at Asia, you know, Japan, Korea, China, they only file about 10% the amount of tickets that America does okay, per capita, right, for, per, you know, 1,000 players in the game. They just don't complain, right? They're there to play, right? You know, it's just, it, if it's, the game is too buggy, they might say something, right? Or if they run into something that, that stops their game play, okay, then they'll file a ticket, right? Boy, in America, you know, somebody stubs their toe in a rock in a game and it's like they're filing a grievance. Right. <laughs> That's Get the way expected. it feels. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it feels like that sometimes, you know, you would, with your customer service, you're just wading through all these profane emails. Right. So true story, when I got to uh, EA slash Origins to, to work on Ultima Online, they'd been launched for about, I actually forget, yeah, you know, maybe a year or so. And they brought me online to, to, to handle, not customer service, but basically like the, the GMs uh, who were different than customer service, that kind of thing. So the very first thing I did is I sat down at, uh, and I went through the, the run book uh, that had all the sign-offs to launch the game in 97. And nobody had signed off on launching the game because there were still like 800 bugs, right? So, you know, basically it just got launched with a lot of bugs. And, and that caused a real big headache in customer service, right? Because these people are just sending email after email. And i swear to god I, I i don't know how profane i'm allowed to be on this podcast
0: oh, don't but worry it's it, fine you
1: know we have okay. people so, swear
0: on the podcast a couple times
1: every single email that i started going through from the previous month i'll go there started out with something like you son of a bitch fudge packing cocksuckers <laughs> right <laughs> you know and then complaining about a problem oh, you've got to fix my lag you've got to do this you've got to do that i was like oh my god and none of these emails had been responded to all right so there was like something on the order of 200 emails per hour coming in and none of them were being responded to and you could see the progression of how mad people were getting from their first email to the second to the third to the fourth about the same issue and the addition of like swear words from the first one to the fourth one yeah so oh man
2: yeah and you mentioned you mentioned the role of the guilds neverwinter nights was actually the you know in addition to being the first graphical game you know before that we had the muds where uh, rpgs were in text and we were the first to do it in graphics but the other thing is, we also had the first guilds, and I had anticipated because we'd seen some of that behavior in some of the early text games. Uh, I, I had anticipated there would be some kind of collaborative things, but the guilds grew way beyond that. And the gri- guilds—one of the reasons that the uh, the game uh, evolved so well, even with only one major update that we did—and then. I know there were system side updates for a few things from AOL, but we went for years. AOL was so busy growing and doing other things, we went for years without updates. And I would have loved to have do it, done it, but they just said, can't, we're too busy, we're just, you know, we're dying over here. And so the guilds, by organizing activities, really extended the life of the game. Uh, and I just, uh, I'm so grateful to the, the folks who created those original guilds, because when we weren't allowed to go in and build more of the game, we just had to sit still in what we had, uh, they found ways to create new experiences by organizing activities within the world we created. And so uh, so that was a very big deal, was uh, the role they played.
1: Yeah. 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 So basically, to sum up, you know, we learned that customer service doesn't scale when you're talking about millions and millions of players. So without guilds, without player helpers, without volunteers pitching in, we couldn't manage these games effectively. Period.
0: From a technical point of view, uh, was there something that changed the game, changed the possibilities so much that uh, you know new games were, were made? <laughs> Or were were possible all of a
2: sudden, but things that were not able to be done before. I think there was a there were two things going on. Number one was a background thing of machines steadily get faster, and since uh, uh, since this stuff primarily evolved away from consoles, it evolved on PCs uh, and similar kinds of machines elsewhere in the world that wouldn't have been called PCs back then. Uh, you had a steady increase in processor speed in graphic resolution in number of colors displayed and as that marched ahead that produced a progression you had uh, faster connection lines steadily faster steadily faster with consoles we we have this case of uh, everything's running one way no we jump off a cliff Everything that's old is useless. We start with the new console, we build it back up, we get to the plateau, we're making money again. It's great, we jump off the cliff so we have these wild highs and lows uh, every time there's a next gen. When you're dealing with connection speeds, modem rates, processor speed rates, and graphic quality on monitors going from the late 80s up to the present day, most of it is a steady climb with little leaps inside it. And so what happened for online was you had less of these explosive, explosive moments were moments of creative innovation with a couple of exceptions. And one of the one of the sea changes was when the internet uh, connected to AOL email, exactly just as you said, and suddenly both AOL and the net exploded because that combination, suddenly a lot of people had a reason to use the internet. Uh, And so that opened things up. I think that when Ultima, uh, when Richard and the team shipped Ultima, uh, I think the scale of that, uh, Jess, you were talking about how they'd spent millions when everybody else had barely spent a hundred thousand dollars on what they did. I think that changed a lot of perspectives and drew a lot of competitors. So I think that that was a big moment. Uh, And I think if you look at the larger scale of social gaming, which is what online really represented, that connection between people that drove it, once we get mobile, once you get to 2007 and mobile starts to explode, it isn't the same as doing something on a PC, but the social connection, a lot of the emotion, comes from the same deep wells of human needs that drive us to want to play these games.
0: Yeah, just a comment I wanted to make on, on Ultima because you've mentioned a couple times Ultima Online is the one project that, uh, you know, was having a bigger budget for, for the first time. You know, a while ago I, I talked to Richard about this and he mentioned he had a pretty hard time convincing the uh, the executives back then to uh, actually get it started, to to bring it to kind of a closed beta, you would call it today, probably like an initial test version. I, uh, I think, it, I don't recall how much he wanted, but it, it was like in the bigger scale of things it was not much, but nobody believed in uh, in, the, in the concept at first and he, he told me this this uh, you know one of his famous stories that uh, you know he was uh, waiting in the room or he sitting in the room not leaving until he finally got the signature <laughs> and the approval for for making that thing happen so um you know i i think even there it took uh, a bit of convincing to actually uh get it to a point that finally people believed it makes sense and then obviously kind of pre-orders came in and uh, you know people saw it was taking off and and then i, I guess it justified the rest of the budget but uh, you know this this was <laughs> even that was tricky
1: well, it, Which, it started when they got like twenty thousand people to pay five dollars yeah, exactly, to yeah, beta test right. the game. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, we'll send you a disk, you know, but you got to pay us five bucks, right? It, you know, people just started. Yeah, okay, here, yeah. take my money. Yeah. yeah.
0: So
2: um, What's funny as I was at a conference in nineteen ninety one speaking. I think it was a, it was one of these many uses of computers. I think it was the Siebold Conference in San Francisco. And the uh, the host introduced me as the only guy who'd ever made money in online games in
0: 1991.
2: <laughs> and I look back that and it's just been so funny to think about. <laughs> That's great, That's It's I a enjoyed. nice
0: introduction, you know. It, it, it pretty much competes with my introduction today of more than 80 years' experience, right? You know? <laughs> so... I'm wondering uh, just to to kind of wrap up the topic of uh, you know the evolution of online games and what is possible today compared to 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 the early days. You know now we're in a world of where the cloud is pretty much you know omnipresent. A lot of things are, are happening. What some call cloud native these days. So from from your points of view, like what is what is possible now with in terms of cloud gaming for online games? Are there things that can be done now in big online worlds that that couldn't be done like ten twenty? 30 years ago from a design point of view maybe like things that that, that are now possible
1: yeah I was going to say it's it's less the hardware than the thinking you know they're thinking well why are we still doing level based RPGs right people love RPGs but they hate the grind there's got to be a better way now with the technology that's mature to a point where you can do a lot people are starting to think more about well let's you know what the hell take away the grind start out powerful and what happens then right
2: and i i think with the power of the cloud uh back in the old days you know we would always complain about the hardware well the hardware keeps us from doing more than this. The hardware keeps us from doing more than that. And then, you know, you'd get the next step up. Oh, wow. Okay. We don't have to worry about 300 baud modems anymore. Now we only. Wow. A 1200 baud modem min, minimum spec. Oh, wow. Think of what we can do now. That's so exciting. And of course, then we'd be complaining about 1200 baud and so on and so forth. But the. Um, I think if we if we fast forward to today, the fact is we don't have those complaints. Anything in terms of scale, any spectacular effect, if, if you have a movie studio, you can make any kind of movie you want. It's just a question of how much money you want to make and what pro- spend and what production values you want on your film. We're now in that same situation. We can do any kind of online game we want to, but it's a question of how much we want to spend for what production values. And the same thing has happened to online games that happen to films, and that is the issue of expectations. When we did, uh, you look back at Neverwinter Nights, the graphics are blocky, it's turn-based, it's slow. And people loved it because it was something that had always been impossible, and now they can do it. Well, today, where everything seems possible, player expectations especially look after looking at World of Warcraft evolved for these years and having hundreds and hundreds of millions spent on it. So just like a, a movie company trying to make uh, some kind of a blockbuster spectacular, the expectations for what that is have risen so high and we have the same issue. So now it's not what can you it's what can you imagine. It's what can you sell? And because you have to sell to the money people first, and the money people are operating from companies that depend upon the public stock markets. And the public stock markets, people, you buy a stock, you want the stock to go up. You know, this is my retirement fund. This is the money I have to live off when I retire. I want the stock to go up. Well, that means you want predictable gains. And all the people who work for companies with stock all the people who are doing investment management, all of this goes back to, can the value be predicted to go up? Well, things that are predictable by definition are not exciting and innovative. They are rehashing what's new. They're putting a license on something. And so that's why so often it isn't the big project that innovates because you have to offer something predictable to get big money. It's the little game that does something innovative, breaks out, and is successful. And then it becomes predictable, and then the big guys will want to do the same things. So really, in the old days, it was a matter of baud, especially a baud rate, a graphic resolution. Those traded off with each other. Uh, But now it's a matter of meeting incredible expectations, whereas before we had low expectations to meet. Uh, and finding the money, not finding the speed
0: player expectations would have been would have been my next question you know so you kind of guessed where, <laughs> where i was going with that uh it i'm wondering if i look back at the last uh, 20 years or so you mentioned world of warcraft uh, which launched in, in t- 2004 i think um so uh you know it's it's been out there for for quite a while and many have tried to compete with it to um you kind of reproduce the success that this particular title had especially the field of mmos very competitive um so how do we overcome this, this issue that you were just describing, Don? I mean, I know that smaller games are usually the ones innovating more, but then you mentioned high player expectations. So it, it, does anybody have a chance to build like a, a huge new online world and uh, kind of defeat World of Warcraft <laughs> in, in being like the, the dominant game out there in that space? Or is it more like uh, that we're going to see smaller titles, more niche titles that all going to make good money, but are not going to be as dominant as some of the, the games were uh, a couple of years ago?
2: I have ideas on that, Jess. I, I would, want, I'd be curious to hear what you think. I, I, I can chip in my, my thoughts, but.
1: <laughs> well. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility that somebody will spend the money to, to make a, a large-scale online game. Uh, the problem that they've got are, you know, the player expectations on one side where. Well, you know, I I should just go play World of Warcraft because they've already got all that content. You just launched and you don't have much content at all. You know, that's not very fun. Why should I bring my guild over here? So if you've got the player expectations on one side and then, as Don just mentioned, you know, the money guys got their expectations. You know, they want to get a return on investment. Right. So they want costs to be kept low. we're we're kind of stuck with that that the triad as i call it right now you know that the old saw of you know cheap good or fast and you only get to pick two right you can't have all three you only get to pick two Mm -hmm. right well you know investors always want cheap and good oh yeah and fast too (laughs) but you can't have three it's like if you want fast i need more money to hire more people well no you can't have that well then you can have it cheap and good it's just going to take me 10 years to make this game right i can only afford to hire like five people instead of the 150 i would normally hire so all those expectations are kind of killing us we're we're kind of at an inflection point you know somebody Remember when Facebook decided that it was going to cost everybody else in the rest of the world, any company who wanted to go into VR, a billion dollars to get into the industry? And they did that by buying a VR company that they hadn't founded or any of that. And they just said, here it is. We're going to spend a billion dollars with these guys, you know, buying the company and setting up content and a division Anybody else want in? ha. Ah. Right. So what we really need it just, Don's so perfectly correct on this. It's a matter of money now. We need somebody willing to throw a billion dollars at you know a, a product or a concept or something. I mean that would do it. Maybe it's as simple as somebody who'll throw three or four hundred million at it. I mean we've tried 200 million with the star wars license star wars the old republic right and that didn't work all that great okay so the game's i think still going to make money in the long run but you know they didn't get the tens of millions of subscribers wow got so i i think yeah it's a question at this point who's willing to
0: pony up for something new so what do you think don do you would you agree with that
2: I, I think on the financial side, I think that's it. I think that there are two thoughts I have. Number one is the mindset. When I was originally training as a writer, um, I got sat down by my mentor and a professor at my college who uh, really, I felt like turned me, you know, I, I, I had come in there, you know, uh, a passionate guy about about writing, and he turned me into a writer with what he did. And he said, "You just have to be realistic about this. If you submit a story to a mag to a, a magazine, uh, hoping that they will publish your short story, they're probably getting uh, for the big magazines. They may be getting three or four thousand submissions a month, and uh, from that pile." Of stuff that comes in unrequested they may take three stories a month the rest of the rest of the magazine is famous writers it's Isaac Asimov it's Robert Heinlein you know uh, back in the day those guys are taking most of the space if you write if you were writing science fiction and so you have to figure out how am I if I want to be one in a thousand that month how am I going to do something that's unique, different, and interesting enough to do that? And he said playwriting, the same thing. There's only a certain number of theaters. Most of those theaters are broke. They're doing tried and true old stuff in order to make money because that's what people will come to. And if you're a playwright trying to get your stuff produced and make any money at all, um, just it's, this, it's a very similar situation because most theaters aren't paying for anything. And once lightning strikes to you and, and you have success, yeah, then it's okay. If that's not okay with you, don't plan on having a career doing this. And in fact, my original thought was I was going to be a school teacher because that gate was saying, gave you summers off to write. And that was one way to be able to be both, uh, to have the time to write and support myself. And thank God with my wife's support. Um, so if we fast forward to today, We're looking at a similar situation where if you're a clever small team or even a clever individual with a great idea, you're facing that same thing of ideas are cheap. Lots of people are running around with ideas. Um. You know, I, I got an unsolicited pitch for an idea. I'm not a publisher anymore. And I got an unsolicited pitch this morning and I have to take time sometime today to write a note back saying I don't do th- I'm not doing this sort of thing. The c- companies I'd, I'm advising, uh, uh, I'm, I'm advising on internal development. Thank you. And so if it's good, you can forward it to me. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, I won't be forwarding it to you, the uh, <laughs> Got it. But so it, it's a different mindset because if you're if if you're seeing, you know, when you're an insider, if you're working for Sony, and you're part of a creative team on a major franchise, well, when the, when they decide they're ready for a major franchise, now you have a chance to influence the world. But most people are not sitting in those chairs, and uh, having had the privilege of doing that, sometimes. Uh, I look at it now and I I think in many ways because that world is again limited by the how do we how do we make money off of it the pure open thinking is what produces the breakout titles and that's why indie games have produced so many of the innovations of the last 10 years which then either the company grows or it gets bought and then there are copycats and so on it goes from there but so I think in, in the things I'm do, trying to do, I'm, I'm trying to think in that, okay, 4,000 submissions, I've got one in the 1,000 chance of having my story, and now my game work. Uh, if I can do it in that environment, how am I trying to stand out? The other thing I think about the future, with particularly with online games, is that we have been progressing most of all on the idea of wowing people with scope we have the biggest game we have the game with the most beautiful graphics we have the game with the most beautiful women come play our game and you see all the advertising for all these it's always the most of this the most of that and that's not just why we play games people play online games for many reasons But the biggest sense of all is the sense of a connection a shared purpose a collaboration and over time coming to care about the people around you and having them care about you there are plenty of exceptions to this but if you look back at so much of the history of online games that is the through line so whether you're spending fifty thousand dollars or five dollars and you're just doing something all by yourself or 50 million or 500 million just wowing people is a very expensive and just as you said with the uh, various games doesn't always work as a way to do it and it gets harder and harder connecting people one of the great moments we had at AOL and, and Jess I don't know if this was before you left or not We got a letter from someone who uh, basically, uh, I've told this story a lot of times, but this was probably early 90s somewhere, early to mid 90s somewhere. And she basically said, um, just wanted to thank you, really enjoy the game, love playing Neverwinter Nights. I've been playing with the same people for for years now and just love the connection. And then there's a second paragraph to the letter Uh, oh by the way I was an abusive I was in an abusive relationship my husband would not let me out of the house except under very carefully guarded conditions to go to the store or whatever I had to come immediately back Um, the one thing he would let me do is sit in the bedroom and play on our computer and I could play I could use online services I could play Neverwinter Nights and I got so could be so, such good friends with the people I played with regularly that finally I told them what I was going through. And they said, you've got to go get out of there. You've got to go to the cops. You've got to do something. You've got to get out of there because she was afraid he was going to kill her. And if she if he even thought she was thinking of leaving. And finally they persuaded her and I don't know the exact details, but she, she ended up get, ha- having a moment where she got out, she went to the police, she got into a safe setting and she was writing this note to us just to say thank you for making neverwinter nights because i love the game but because of the relationships i formed and the trust i had with them i actually escaped this situation and later on uh, we got we got a follow up from her she had actually met somebody online whom she married and started a family with happily after this through online games I don't remember if she actually met the person in Neverwinter Nights or somewhere else, but, and you think about that, this is back when this gaming was rare, but the human issues, that need for human connection is eternal. That keeps going on. That's something that hasn't changed. If anything, it's grown greater because we feel more isolated in the modern world. I think than we even felt in 1988. And so, uh, So for that reason, I think that is the true through line, is finding what is the way in which you create an online experience that is both fun to play, it's diverting. I just need a half hour to relax and have fun at the end of the day. I need an hour to just go in my fictional world and have a great time. But that also, for at least a good number of your players, creates that sense of connection, and caring that they crave as part of their lives. And that's something that's impossible to quantify. You can't teach it in a book. But I think that's the biggest path forward.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, over the past 15 years that I've been in online games, I've heard many of those similar stories people meeting in games people people finding true social connection i've personally been a guild leader for like 120 people in world of warcraft like um uh quite a few years ago and you know i've spent time uh you know every single day hours you know in the evening (laughs) to uh to to debate all kind of different things i was a marriage consultant i was uh you know an unemployment consultant (laughs) i was like everything in in the game and uh i learned a lot about leadership in this virtual space and i think uh, you know looking at those experiences that many people made in online games whether it's never winter nights or world of warcraft or any of the other um, uh, online titles i think this is what we should uh, should really appreciate and and try to build new game experiences around going forward um, because this, I, I couldn't agree more with you Don. that uh, you know the social connection in those games is what makes them different and what ultimately you know h- creates those fans that still after many many years love Neverwinter Nights love Ultima Online or, or other titles and still try to keep them alive through stories pretty much so if we combine this kind of as a, as a wrap-up for our session, you know, I, I want some bold predictions from from you. I have people with, like, you know, over 80 years of combined experience, you know, sorry for mentioning it again. But uh, what are what are your thoughts, like looking a little bit into the future? I know, you know, sometimes we're, we're super off when we make predictions, but uh, we talked a bit about, uh, you know, what possibilities developers would have and what, what obstacles they need to overcome to make uh, new titles that, that can stand out. What are your personal thoughts? Maybe one prediction from each one of you, uh, like where the industry will be, uh, the online games industry in particular, in about like, I don't know, five to 10 years or so. Is there anything that you see happening at the moment uh, that, that's gonna lead to, to something going forward? Maybe starting with, with
2: Don with you. Yeah, I think that, I think that we've had a top down and a bottom up world for the last really 10 plus years. If you think of the bottom up as the mobile games function, much simpler, more casual, you want to be able to play when you're waiting in line at the market. You know, you might, you come in and out of games and maybe even in 30 second or two minute increments and the game is a diversion. And then also out of that over time, longer form play forms have grown up on mobile and we now see more complex games coming and the production values yes does this sound familiar yes we'll wow them with the graphics yes the prettiest pictures the highest resolution the prettiest women come you know whatever it is that's being used in the advertisements to get people to come and play the game um and some of the ads are actually embarrassed the ones with oh we have the prettiest woman i just uh i just yeah, we should, just, we should really get over this, to this to as an industry.
0: Uh, <laughs> you know, we have this topic on many podcast episodes here where, you know, uh, of course I've talked to a lot of female game developers, and uh, this is
2: something that really needs to change in our industry. You just cringe. <laughs> yeah. You just cringe. So I think the bottom up is replicating that past past history. The top down is the online PC console production values spectacular. Blockbuster, Yes. Yes, two billion explosions in only ninety seconds of gameplay. Yes, nobody else can do it but us. <laughs> the um, oh, wait a second. There's a new superhero. This is the two hundred and sixteenth new superhero, and we're making we're making a new uh, MMO about and 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 he's only the two hundred and sixteenth new superhero in the last three years. So if that's the top, where it's about big. And we've got the bottom, which is big. And we we're trying to entertain you for a long time because we have to justify high prices. So we're having a big experience that you feel is worth it. And we have free to play where you self-addict at the bottom. I think we're going to see different experiments in how those can meet looking for that connection. But I think most of all, I think that we have just entered the era in which games, in the last 10, 12 years, in which games are truly ubiquitous. We thought we were there in the year 2000 when we had Xbox and and, uh, PS3, but I think now we truly have, games are everywhere, they are a norm. For people uh, who were born in the last 25 years, they've never experienced anything other than ubiquitous gaming. And I think that evolution where it is no longer one of the things that some people do, but it's something that most people do a lot of the time, that places it in a different category of entertainment. And what it does also is because it is now assumed to be there, so that's the exciting part. That means growth. That means more money. That means more usage, more audience, more yes, yes, it's wonderful. I'm excited. (laughs) but the other thing it means is when you are ubiquitous when you are the norm when you are the same old thing when you are what i'm already used to oh now i have to find new ways to be exciting because the way that i became ubiquitous and got me here is now the standard and everybody sees it all the time and it's not exciting and so i think that's why i think We're going to see that continued thing of big companies cannot escape that. They're stuck. They need predictability. And I think we're going to continue to see innovation and new ideas that do break the mold. Because some people are starting to think, okay, we've used up all the major innovation here. Now it's put a license on it, put a variation. That's never true. But people who are trying to be the one in a thousand who get noticed will innovate, and that's where the, the innovation is absolutely gonna come from the fringe, not from the center.
0: Right. So, Jess, <laughs> your your final words in that regard, any any predictions that you have for where we're heading in online games?
1: You know, when I was, while Don was talking, I was uh, thinking back to every time I've done this exercise with somebody, and every single time, it's ended up being too conservative, right? I I remember in 2000, I said, well, you know, maybe in 20 years, we'll actually have playable console online games. And, you know, a few percentage points of the game players will actually be online. And 10 years later, you know, we had like 5 million connected consoles and, you know, everybody's playing Call of Duty online. It's like, oh, okay. That's just one example. So I'm kind of loathe to make predictions, but, but I will say this. Every time there's been a huge leap in our technology, the capabilities of our technology, we've seen interesting new ways to do games. And as Don noted, it's almost always independence, you know, and generally small independence that lead the way. Right? Let's never forget that, you know, Doom was done by a really small independent in a, a you know, outback town in Texas. but we, well, They had like maybe five guys at the time, right? And they revolutionized computer gaming uh, uh, overnight with Doom, right? And then even more with Quake, you know, a couple of years later. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm trying to look at... Is something gonna replace the mobile phone as a gaming device? And if it did, what would that device look like? You know? So is it is are you carrying it around with you still? Is it like the switch? You know, I mean So that that's where I'm headed in my thinking these days, but I, I really have no specific prediction to make there no, that's
0: that's fine i think you know i, I would agree with both of you that uh, independent game developers uh, have always been important and will continue to be very important to to drive the innovation in our business and we have a lot of listeners uh from the indie development scene as part of the podcast here and in general as part of the community of defcom so i think they're going to be very happy to hear <laughs> that that you would agree that they are the driving force you know to to get our industry to the next level in that regard so, uh, Jess and, and Don, I want to thank you so much for being part uh, of the podcast. Uh, I think it was a wonderful episode. It's I could listen t- to you for hours talking about the early days, and I hope we at some point get to continue uh, to uh, learn more about this and maybe review like the predictions that you guys made in the end uh, today. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, for me, and I hope that uh, the audience enjoys it as much as I did uh, hosting uh, the two of you. Uh, thank you so much again, and uh, I hope that uh, we get the chance to connect in real life at some point, you know, after this this pandemic is more manageable for everybody. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us on. Don, it's been great talking to you again. Too. Oh, Jess, it's so much
2: fun. Just listen to you. I just uh, – <laughs> hours and hours and hours I would love to, to catch up. We've got to get together.
0: A quick announcement regarding the upcoming podcast episode. Thanks to our team's focus on the DEVCOM Developer Conference 2021 next week, our next regular episode will release three weeks from now on September 6th. Have a great time until then, and keep gaming. Thank you for listening to the DEVCOM Games Industry Podcast, presented by devcom.global, produced by Sven Vossi, executive producer Stefan Reichart. music by weloveindies.com, Supported by Beyer Dynamic, high-quality headphones, microphones and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.